Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Which countries are moving ahead and which are moving backward in the transition to a clean economy? Climate One Conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Devin Strolovich. After several mostly flat years, worldwide emissions of greenhouse gases reached an all-time high in 2018. But clean energy continued to advance with a record amount of new solar capacity added. We're seeing some numbers that I think are kind of nuts. Solar is 90% cheaper than it was 10 years ago. Wind is 70% cheaper. Batteries are 80% cheaper than they were. Sonia Agarwal is Vice President of Energy at the consulting firm Energy Innovation. She previously managed global energy research at ClimateWorks Foundation, a supporter of Climate One. She's optimistic that clean energy technologies can be deployed at speed and scale. We're talking about a path to decarbonize the world. We need to decarbonize the world economy really quickly and at massive scale. Joshua Goldstein is Professor Emeritus of International Relations at American University and co-author of the new book, A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. Goldstein is a little less sanguine about the prospects for decarbonization if what matters most is carbon output. Benching one of your main players in the low carbon system is, is never going to be a good thing. Staffan Kvist is an energy consultant and co-author with Joshua Goldstein of A Bright Future. A native of Sweden, where half the power comes from nuclear energy, Kvist believes countries that shun or even shut off nuclear power are slowing the transition to a cleaner economy. Let's listen as Greg Dalton welcomes all three to the Climate One stage for a conversation about what's working and what's not in the fight to stabilize the climate. Sonia, let's begin with you. As you look around the globe, who's doing the best? Who's winning the race to change their economy and their energy before climate really gets bad? Um, great question. Um, we here in California actually like to, uh, uh, there's a lot of folks in Sacramento who kind of consider us to be a separate country in and of ourselves, right? So um, if California was a separate country, it would be uh, the fifth largest economy in the world. Mm. And so it matters a lot what's going on here. And um, here we have a suite of policies which really look at each of the different sources of greenhouse gas emissions, whether it's power plants or factories, cars, buildings, agriculture, and have uh, set targets and put together really detailed policies to move us to a, a lower carbon system overall here. 
There's also, of course, um, quite a few other countries that are really moving quickly. In Europe, if you look at Spain and Ireland, there's a lot of progress there. I know some of my co-panelists will also talk about some other progress in Europe, too. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's been pretty amazing to see how the market has taken off to really bring down the cost of clean energy and what impact that's making in a lot of different places around the world. Joshua Goldstein, let me challenge a little bit even the, the question of, uh, uh, well, the title of, of the book, which is, you know, I'm not sure any country has really solved climate change. Well, nobody solved climate change, but the reason we call the book how some countries have solved climate change and the rest can follow, we're talking about a path that no one country can solve climate change. It's a global problem. Mm. We're talking about a path to decarbonize the world. We need to decarbonize the world economy really quickly and at massive scale. Um, and the way that some places are doing it, and I would include California in this, they're moving in the right direction, but it's not fast enough and it's not a path that could actually realistically get to the goal by mid-century. Other countries, and we talk about Sweden quite a bit, um, Stefan's country, um, France, Ontario, South Korea, have added clean energy much faster and we're interested in that model and how it could apply to the world as a whole. The metric that matters here is carbon going into the atmosphere. It's not what you say, it's not how many renewables you put in or how many nuclear plants you put in or how many protesters you get in the street, it's how much carbon's going up. And you don't need to take our word for it. There's a wonderful website called electricitymap.org that shows how many grams of carbon for each kilowatt hour of electricity? You know, how dirty is your electricity for the countries in the world and for the states within the United States or regions? And if you look at that, you can see who's green, color-coded green, that's very little carbon going in, and, and who's really brown, you know, a lot of carbon. California's in the middle on that. Sweden and France are really green, and they're doing it with nuclear power primarily, in Sweden's case, nuclear and renewables, uh, there are also countries that can do it with hydroelectricity, but that's very hard to expand because uh, many countries don't have that resource. Um, so we want to turn that map green, and we have very little time to do it, and it's at a large scale. Stefan Chris, tell us the, your European favorites. So, you know, Sweden, of course, it's all easy to dismiss small northern European countries with small populations. Singapore, Nordic countries, it's like, oh, it's easy for those small, uh, more socialist countries to do things. But tell us, tell us the case for those. Uh, yeah, so when I look at a problem, like I was renovating my house, I always go to YouTube and I search, like, how do you do this? <coughs> and usually that's a good way to look at a problem. Has anyone actually managed to do what we're trying to do? And the first step of what everyone is trying to do is decarbonize the electricity grid, because that's kind of the low-hanging fruit of decarbonization. And throughout my entire lifespan, I was born in 1986, Sweden has had a completely decarbonized electricity grid. So for me, it was obvious to see what did we do? How long did it take? How much did it cost? Obviously, it's a small example, but basically France is a similar example at a much larger scale. But Sweden is kind of the size of a typical US state. And so you could make the argument that if every state did like Sweden, that would add up to United States, for instance. But France is a similar story on a much larger scale. So th there are a few examples, but obviously we have this big problem because there aren't a lot good examples. There are only a few good examples. Uh, but what I was starting to look at in my academic research is how did Sweden do this? How did France do this? 
how quickly did it happen and how much did it cost? And so those stories, I think, are stronger than energy systems modeling, which I also do, because they actually happen in real life. Of course, we talk about France. You have to talk about the recent uh, yellow vest protests. Sonia, uh, you know, a lot of people on the right, Heritage Foundation, were very quick to point out, aha, you try to price carbon, raise gasoline taxes. There's revolutions in the street, which could send a chilling effect to some politicians thinking, oh, we don't want to have that here. But it's actually more complex. I totally agree. Yeah, so there's a lot of different things going on in France at the moment in terms of their overall economic policy. So one of the things, of course, is a list of carbon-oriented, climate-oriented policies. But at the same time, there's a lot of um, broader uh, immigration and economic issues that are going on as well. So... um, Changing income taxes, a lot of things to get angry about. Exactly, exactly. So, yes, the taxes are a huge issue um, overall, not just the um, taxes on fossils. So I think that without a clear plan to bring communities along and bring working people with you on the solutions, it's going to be a lot harder to get there. But I don't think that it's a um, one or the other here on pricing carbon. But uh, Joshua, as a professor of international relations, it, it must sting to look at, you know, we have the Paris Climate Accord, and here we have the president of France trying to advance a climate policy, and it literally goes up in flames. What does that say to other politicians around the world about climate leadership? And it, it's got to have a chilling effect. Well, carbon pricing is, which a, a gas tax is kind of a version of, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard politically and Australia put it in, and then the government lost power, and it was taken back out. Washington State just tried to pass a carbon price, and it didn't pass. Second time it failed. Second time it failed. British Columbia's done it pretty successfully, and right. Canada's trying to put it in, and then California and New England have a, a, a low, pretty low tax. But when it works, it's great, and Sweden's done it very successfully. $150 per ton. Um, which is a very high carbon tax. When a carbon price works, it works across the whole economy, and it does, it's not picking particular technologies. It works for renewables or, or nuclear power or geothermal um, on evening the price with fossil fuels. Right now, fossil fuels can dump their pollution into the atmosphere, not only for climate change uh, effects, but also uh, health effects of burning coal and so forth. That's all free. So if you can even that out then, and it works across the whole economy and it works really quickly, then that's a huge step forward. So there are efforts in the US Congress now to pass a uh, carbon pricing bill, raise the price of uh, fossil fuels and rebate to the citizenry the revenue that's raised, so it's revenue neutral. And it's got support from a lot of Republicans and Democrats alike, but it, it is a hard issue politically. Stefan Kvist, uh, you write about Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima, the three big nuclear disasters that have happened in, in modern times. What has been the total human impact of those three disasters, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima? Uh, well, this is a very interesting issue of information in the public sphere being kind of uh, misguided or misguiding, I, I would say. They, they've made, there's been a pin or polling when people are asked how many people this question basically how many people do you think died or got injured in three mile island or in fukushima and chernobyl 
and next to zero percent have what is the scientific consensus correct answer. Almost no one knows the answer to these questions, and that's part of what we're trying to address in the book. So Three Mile Island, obviously, uh, no one got harmed at all. Uh, Chernobyl, there is a statistical increase in cancer because there was a lot of radiation released. I, I think the consensus from the UN studies is potentially over time, if you use the most conservative model, maybe up, up to 4,000 people may lose their lives from that really severe accident. And in Fukushima, there's one contested case where someone may, his death may have been contributed by uh, him being near Fukushima. Joshua, big concern with nuclear, of course, is about uh, nuclear proliferation. You study uh, international affairs. Uh, there's got to be concern about loose nukes, that material getting into the wrong hands. Yeah. So backing up for a second on the safety issue and then the proliferation is kind of a similar answer. Any fuel is going to have pluses and minuses. And nuclear power should be treated like others. There's costs and, and benefits. Um, and you want to have a sensible attitude toward it. So to say, like, one accident happened, Chernobyl, and, and thousands of people died, you've got to compare that with people that coal kills every year, people that, you know, hydroelectric dams burst, all, methane gas blows up, you know, natural gas, and so forth. So there's all pluses and minuses. And one of the minuses of nuclear power, although it's not well understood, is that the same material... The same physical process it has a relationship to nuclear weapons and to nuclear power production. And that's a, a big reason people are afraid, especially those of us that grew up in the Cold War, because you know, we hit our heads under the desks. We were terrified. We were traumatized by nuclear weapons. And rightly so. They're pretty terrifying. And then we kind of say anything nuclear, that, that's what it reminds us of. So a nuclear plant can't blow up like a nuclear weapon. That's a, an impossibility. And nuclear material from a civilian nuclear plant, in theory, could be accumulated and used to make a nuclear weapon with. But what we have is a system of international controls um, under the International Atomic Energy Agency, to which all but four countries in the world belong. And that system intrusively monitors all this material. They put cameras on the site. They put seals on the canisters and you know, sort of very carefully make sure that nothing is diverted out of civilian nuclear power programs. It's been entirely successful, and nobody's been able to make a bomb you know, as a result of any failure in that system. Countries like Israel and North Korea that don't belong to that and have made bombs, they don't even have civilian nuclear power programs. And uh, Pakistan and India also don't belong. They do make nuclear weapons, and they have nuclear power, but they don't make the nuclear weapons from the nuclear power systems. It would be inefficient and uneconomical. They have their own, you know, separate military reactors to produce plutonium for weapons, and then they've got reactors that are producing electric power. So we've managed to keep them separate. It's worked so far. If we have a big increase in nuclear power to address the climate crisis, um, we should ramp up those safety controls. Um, and, and do more and make sure that there's no failure. But so far, that system is working. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about how some countries are solving climate change. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks more about how nuclear and other low-carbon technologies fit in today's energy market. Solar plus storage 
and wind plus storage in some of the most recent auctions are coming in at costs that are below the ongoing operating costs of existing coal plants. It's a pretty amazing moment. That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about international efforts to stabilize the climate with Sonia Agarwal, Vice President of Energy at the consulting firm Energy Innovation. Joshua Goldstein, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at American University. And Stefan Quist, an energy consultant and co-author with Joshua Goldstein of A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. In 2010, President Obama greenlighted construction of the first new nuclear reactors in the United States in more than 30 years. Some call the move the beginning of a nuclear renaissance. Nearly a decade later, neither of those projects, Georgia's power plant Vogel outside of Augusta and the VC summer project near Columbia, South Carolina, are close to being finished. Matt Kempner has been covering the story for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. A lot of the uh, power industry was interested in the possibility of getting back into the construction of new nuclear power in the United States. So President Obama and his administration streamlined the process, and the, the federal government also offered a batch of tax credits and loan guarantees. It didn't go the way many had hoped. South Carolina ditched out already. They pulled the plug on the project. Of course, that meant that there were billions of dollars spent on a project that the ratepayers in South Carolina weren't going to get any benefit from. Led to lawsuits and all kinds of other things. Georgia Power, and therefore many of the ratepayers in Georgia, the customers in Georgia, thought they had some level of protection. But the cost overruns became so deep that, in fact, the contractors started ditching out of the project. And ultimately, its main designer, Westinghouse Electric, ended up filing for bankruptcy protection. And as a result, the risk all went back on Georgia consumers. The costs are now something like $27 billion, which is about double what the original projections were. And the project is years behind schedule, and it still has years to go. It's become clear that the costs of nuclear power end up now looking like they are significantly higher than at least the current costs for some of the alternatives, like natural gas, solar power. That was Matt Kempner, a reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Joshua Goldstein, let's talk about that. $8 billion in federal tax subsidies, the cost double, ratepayers getting hosed, taxpayers getting hosed. Yeah. That was supposed to be a nuclear renaissance. Yeah, no, that was crazy. And then it, it's not entirely specific to nuclear because you have any big capital projects in the United States, like the new Tappan-Z Bridge. They just go way over budget. They're way behind schedule. Big defense projects, too. Um, and nuclear, these nuclear plants, you can't make electricity at affordable rates when you do it that way. By contrast, 
South Korea has been building new nuclear reactors, and they do it by repeating a standardized design over and over again, and the costs come down each time. So what's costing uh, $12 billion in these new projects per gigawatt of capacity, they can do for $2 billion. So a huge difference, and the labor's a little bit cheaper, but mostly it's the construction methodology, the effort to keep costs down, whole different way of contracting. And these four plant, Westinghouse plants that we've had such trouble building here, China just opened four of that exact plant in the last year. So they can build them way cheaper than we can build them. So um, it's a little murky in these state-run economies of exactly the accounting because you don't have the same investors, you know, in terms of the, the financing, I think, is, is less transparent. Sonia Agarwal, you did some early research on McKinsey, Coffs curves, and economics of various energy systems. Um, how do you think nuclear fits in in the market today in the mix? Sure. So I guess I'll just start by saying it is absolutely possible to put together a portfolio of zero carbon resources that looks many different ways and uh, delivers uh, electricity reliably. So then looking at cost uh, comparisons, um, I think it's been really interesting to see some of the very exciting uh, technology neutral auctions that have been happening across the United States and in other parts of the world over the last few years, especially as coal plants have started to retire. We're seeing some numbers that I think are kind of nuts, honestly, not just for solar coming in or wind coming in, which are extremely low cost and have come down. Let's see, solar is 90% cheaper than it was 10 years ago. Wind is 70% cheaper. Batteries are 80% cheaper than they were. But that's kind of the key point to here, especially in this context of dispatchability and balancing the grid. Solar plus storage and wind plus storage in some of the most recent auctions are coming in at costs that are below the ongoing operating costs of existing coal plants. And that's just a crazy time if you think about it in a, in a system that has traditionally moved very slowly. It's a pretty amazing moment. Um, and we've, we've seen the evidence of this. Um, you know, these are just the most recent auction results, but this has been kind of an inexorable decline over the last decade. And we're seeing more and more renewable energy capacity get built um, here in the United States as a result of that. And that's really the power of economies of scale, repeating that manufacturing over and over and over again, which fossil fuels don't have that same uh, advantage because the oil well here, it runs dry. You got to do oil well somewhere else. They don't have resource extraction, doesn't have the same manufacturing economies of scale. Stefan Christ, neither does nuclear yet. No, and I, I would disagree with you a little bit on these numbers because... Uh, for in Sweden, for instance, half of the power comes from hydroelectric and half from nuclear. So it's kind of the ideal place in the world to try to do 100% renewables. You have hydro, which is the most, you know, you can fill out any gap in the solar and wind production very easily. But then you have, like this morning, you have no wind and the sun doesn't really rise in Sweden for a few months in the winter. And so you somewhere... The ha that, half of your power yeah. system <laughs> needs power from somewhere. And if the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, if you want to build over, um, like, say, a few days or what you need to cover that with batteries, that system is far more expensive than even the most expensive nuclear that you could build. So when you say wind plus storage or solar plus storage, it's not a grid-level scale balancing storage. 
It's, it's not a comparative number in that sense. So I would, I would dispute uh, that. But I think we have a real-world example of two different strategies. We have one country in Europe that a decade ago said, we're going 100% renewables, we're going all in, the entire population is behind us, we have enormous funding, and we're going to do this. And we have a decade of results, and that's obviously Germany and the Energiewende, where basically they have not decarbonized. In over a decade of extremely hard, concerted effort to do the 100% renewables route, it has not succeeded. It's actually been a catastrophic failure. Uh, so we, I, I like to look at the real-world examples of wh what has worked, and I think benching one of your main players in the low-carbon system is, is never going to be a good thing. If you allow everyone to contribute, that's going to be a better system, and that's what history has shown us, and that's actually what modeling shows us as well. Sonia Agarwal, do you want to reply? Um, sure, there's a lot there. Um, I would uh, say I totally agree we shouldn't bench anyone. I think that um, in the places where markets are allowed to function in a technology-neutral way, the evidence seems to show that renewables or renewables plus flexibility resources come in a little bit lower cost than nuclear. That's, of course, going to vary across the globe because there are certain areas where solar and wind resources are less good than others. But I guess I would say also on the uh, Germany question, again, a little bit more going on there. One of the issues, of course, too, is that they decided to shut down their nuclear fleet at the same time as they made that pivot to renewals. And I would say that was not the right choice for the climate much better would have been to get rid of the fossil units at the same time as turning toward renewables. And then there I think we, we would be <laughs> in a much better position there, too. If you're just joining us, we're talking about international efforts to combat climate change at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Joshua Goldstein, Professor Emeritus at International of International Relations at American University and co-author of the new book, A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change. Our other guest, Sonia Agarwal, Vice President at Energy Innovation and Consulting Firm, and Stefan Kvist, Energy Consultant and co-author with Joshua Goldstein of A Bright Future. Um, Joshua Goldstein, I want to ask you about the Trump effect, the softening of U.S. leadership on international efforts, because there was a lot of... Um, peer pressure that went into Paris, particularly between uh, Xi Jinping and, and President Modi and President Obama, that's all different now. So how is the, the international dynamics of leadership on climate different now? Well, they, they weren't so great before. And the Paris Agreement, we all thought it was a step in the right direction. It's a step, everything's a step in the right direction. The question is, you're getting there fast enough to head off this catastrophe. That's the urgent problem we're facing. And the Paris Agreement, as far as it goes, if all the countries in the world kept their commitments, which, by the way, almost none of them are, everybody's falling off their commitment, if they all did keep their commitment, all it would do is flatten out our carbon emissions at today's levels. That's not good enough. That's every day we're putting way too much carbon into the atmosphere. And what we need to be doing is rapidly decarbonizing the world economies. We need something more than the Paris Agreement. Um, I'm not going to say anything good about President Trump, but if you took him out of the picture, it wouldn't change things that much. And by contrast, China says they want to be the climate leader, but they're burning half the coal in the world. So if China wanted to really be a climate leader, they could commit to taking the coal off the grid and replacing it fast with clean nuclear power the way Sweden did, as well as building out their renewables fast, which they're doing. 
um, put in the low carbon sources as quickly as possible. Just talking about it, Paris Agreement isn't getting there fast enough, and the 100% renewables idea also can't get there fast enough, but if you bring everything to play and really come to terms with how serious the problem is, you could get there fast enough for it. There's something called the Climate Action Tracker, which ranks critically insufficient Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the U.S., highly insufficient Canada, Japan, South Korea, very few people are doing, you know, getting anywhere close to where, where they, they should be. Uh, Sweden is not rated on this. I don't know why, Stefan. Tell us about some of the new promising nuclear technologies. There's a company called NuScale uh, that's been interviewed here before, the chief technology officer. There's sort of this often long-seeming promise of the next time will be different. The next generation of nuclear will be different. There's small modular reactors. Um, are those for real? Yeah, new scale is very much for real, uh, and it's, it's a very exciting story. Uh, one of the major problems, as you've seen with this giant construction projects, is, uh, is financing. To find the amount of money, even if you build it cheaply, to find the amount of money that's required to build one of these projects is quite hard. And if you do get long construction delays, your financing costs, just paying off your loans, becomes a really big cost driver. Now, what new scale and other people are trying to do is build smaller individual units that are cheaper uh, in absolute terms, they might be similar in cost of delivered electricity, but just cheaper and quicker to build because they're smaller. And so you're trying to r remove one of the major uh, economic risks of nuclear development doing this. And they, you know, they have a number of other advantages. Now, Nuska has been able to prove that the safety of their plant is so good that their planning zone for emergencies is basically just the boundary of the site that they are out, which opens up a whole different types of siting as well for these kind of plants. So it's very much for real. New scale is a, is a fantastic success story so far, but of course we need to see them built and we need to see them come in at prices that are relevant for a decarbonized grid. They also don't require power to keep the reactor safe, which was a big concern after Fukushima about disruption of, of power. So if it's true, uh, but they're still uh, unresolved is, is the waste question. They still have the sort of normal waste issues right there. So Stefan Quist, um, here in this country, we have this ongoing political battle. There are uh, Yucca Mountain, there's bipartisan support for it. If you're outside of Nevada, if you're inside Nevada, there's bipartisan opposition to Yucca Mountain. Uh, the full cost of that is forecast to be $100 billion, uh, a lot of money, maybe not a lot in the grand scheme of the U.S. economy, but the waste issue is still there, and it's not getting solved. Yeah, I would caution that, I, in my personal opinion, and looking at facts, the, waste, the nuclear waste issue isn't that much of a time-pressing issue. We, we know very well how to handle waste safely, and once we've dealt with climate change, it's, it's absolutely no problem to build a repository for nuclear waste if you like to. Finland has started to build theirs. The Swedish one is approved. There are methods to do this. But the amazing thing when you talk about this is that even in a country like Finland, where they're already building their approved nuclear waste repository, people still have the knee-jerk like, response. Well, there's no way to store it. Even, even when you have an approved system that is being built, it's kind of almost built into people that it's not possible. Uh, we have a lot of dangerous wastes coming from numerous industries that we don't know how to store safely that needs to be stored forever, not just for a very long time, but forever, which we don't care enough about. But the nuclear waste issue, we really do care about. So we, we have solutions for that. Now, obviously, the, the US situation is a mess. 
but it's not a time-critical issue. Sonia Agarwal, uh, Nicholas Kristof, New York Times columnist, wrote an article recently saying that 2018 was the best year ever. People are living longer and better. Literacy, child mortality. 2018, life is, on Earth is getting better. You know, Steven Pinker says this. Do you agree? Well, I'll say I'm optimistic about the future. Um, and I think that one of the things that makes me the most optimistic is that we are, have clean energy technologies that can be deployed at speed and scale and are being deployed at speed and scale. Of course, we have to go faster. Um, a statistic that I heard recently was that um, to stay within two degrees, if we started in 2000, we would need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 3% per year. If we started now, we have to reduce them by 10% per year. This is global. And then if we wait 10 more years, we have to start reducing greenhouse gases at a rate of 30% per year. Now, that's a staggering statistic to me. Um, we are not currently reducing greenhouse gas emissions, so we do need solutions that can happen at speed and scale. But if we're in such a great time where um, people are living longer, there's access to new information, there is new technology available to us, I think we're in a better position than we ever have been to get that going fast. And we're seeing some really interesting um, fast-scaling uh, resources happening around the U.S. and around the world. Um, China is building nuclear power plants. Texas is building three gigawatts of solar and five gigawatts of wind within the next couple of years, which that's, you know, a typical nuclear power plant is about a gigawatt. So if what we What does can... a gigawatt do? I don't, I'm in this business. I don't understand what a gigawatt is. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, I wish I had the um, number of homes. In terms of a number of a couple hundred thousand homes? Uh, I, I can give you a, a, a quick number. So Sweden has about 20 gigawatts uh, of power installed for uh, 10 million people. Okay. If so we think of we kilowatt go. hours, which is what people see on their bill, the a world electric grid right now is about 25 trillion kilowatt hours. But projecting forward, and this goes to people's lives improving in the poorer countries, 100,000 people a day hooking up to the grid, this is lifting people out of poverty. Um, in a big way worldwide. And these are the trends Nick Kristof is talking about, that people are getting more income and especially getting more energy. This is really great. Uh, somebody in India can have an air conditioner and so forth. Um, but right now, coal is the cheapest way to do that worldwide. And that's what they're turning to right now. So this 25 trillion kilowatt hours, that's today's electric grid, but that's going to grow. And then we want to start to electrify transportation. We'll all be driving electric cars. And we want to electrify building heating and industry. And we want to create alternative fuels so that something like aviation fuel could be made carbon neutral. It all comes down to vast amounts of cheap, clean electricity. So that's why you need to scale up so tremendously and so quickly to get to a decarbonized world by mid-century. You're listening to a conversation about creating clean economies around the world. This is Climate One. Coming up, questions from the audience about how to make carbon-free technologies more viable in today's energy market. Make the other electricity sources pay their external costs. So we internalize the external cost of pollution and people getting particular matter in their lungs and dying, if you include that in the cost, that immediately changes the economic landscape. That's up next when Climate One continues. 
You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the transition to carbon-free economies with Sonia Agarwal, Vice President of Energy at the consulting firm Energy Innovation, Joshua Goldstein, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at American University, and Stefan Fist, an energy consultant and co-author with Joshua Goldstein of A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. Here's Greg. Sonia, I want to ask you, you're the optimist. Do you ever have moments of fear or doubt where you say, boy, this is scary. I don't know if we can do this at the scale. You have moments of like, maybe my friends are all alarmist and it's not as bad as they think. (laughs) Um, Definitely. I mean, this is a problem with quite overwhelming magnitude, especially looking at those statistics around how quickly we need to really start seeing results in bringing down greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I sort of think of it as, you know, how far we have to bring them down and how quickly we have to bring them down. That means that we need really to be working with everything that we're putting out there now has to be zero carbon. And we have to be letting all the technologies compete to get out there as quickly as possible that are zero carbon. So, yes, the magnitude is overwhelming, but I also have a lot of faith in humanity. So... Stefan Quist, you just got off a plane from Europe. What do you personally do to, you know, have a low-carbon lifestyle? Well, I mean, the, the main thing I try to do is, is write scientific articles and books about how we could decarbonize our electricity. But I would say, in, in my own personal defense, I haven't had a car. I had a car when I was 18 for a few months, but since then I've never had a car at all. And ironically, my electricity contract is 100% renewables. It's just because there is no 100% low-carbon contract for me to buy, which is what I would like to buy, but the 100% renewable one is the second best thing. So I, I, I do that, but I also do this kind of... My family did uh, the Christmas gift this year was carbon offsets. Not, not, the, most, <laughs> not, not the most fun Christmas uh, <laughs> opening ceremony, but... Yeah. The, uh, the, the best stocking stuffers of those cars, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Joshua Goldstein, you have an interesting story for how you were inspired by a loved one to get into this. Tell us that. Yeah, so I started uh, as an environmentalist back in the 1970s, and I started one of the first curbside recycling programs in the country. I hated nuclear power like everybody did because it was big and technological and unnatural. Um, And then I had children. And my uh, son, in particular, when he turned 10, he became a climate activist. And he started to just hammer on me. He's 25 now, so that's, that's a lot of hammering. You know, climate is the issue. This is the planet you're leaving us. This is the thing you need to work on. And I'm a global trends person, so I thought, you know, about five years ago, okay, I will work on it. Not just the feel-good things, not the ideologies, but how am I going to turn over to my children a planet that's in good shape? for them to live in. We're going to invite you to um, join us for the conversation. Welcome Thank to you Climate for the panel One. so far. Um, this may be a little more in-depth than you typically think, but, but you guys are pretty wide-ranging. So if you owned a gas and electric utility, call it you're a director on that or CEO, whatever role you want, what would you do to decarbonize? Um, Sure. Um, So I would first take a look at my existing fleet of generation resources to understand where I'm coming from, right? So what kind of system am I operating in? I would look at um, over time, are we going to see a lot more electricity demand in my region? Um, Then I would uh, start to uh, think about putting out... 
technology neutral auctions for um, whichever zero carbon resource can come in to provide electricity that we are going to need um, over the next 10, 20, 30 year period. I would also make a very clear public statement about what emission reduction target I have. Um, the sooner the better and zero is the right answer. So um, then start to put together a portfolio of resources that can deliver that electricity over time, um, at least cost and reliably. Of course, I would also, this perhaps is a little nerdy again, but um, looking at new tools for how you think about system management is really um, important right now because we are moving into an era where we have a lot more variable resources on the generation side. We have a lot more opportunities for deploying resources more flexibly, um, for thinking about how do we smartly electrify everything? How do we make sure that um, people can charge their cars at home? and uh, feel comfortable with their heating and cooling um, and do so in a way that's going to be the most efficient for the individual and for the system and as an integrated whole. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Yeah. Um, like Joshua Goldstein, I became an environmentalist in the 70s and hated nuclear power and have sort of come around on it. But hearing what you're saying here, what's the one big driver that, that, if you, that we would need to change in order to try and make that a viable technology in this country? Well, I mean, there, there are multiple steps. The first one, the most obvious one, is, is to make the other electricity sources, energy sources, pay their external costs. So you internalize the external cost of pollution and, and people getting particular matter in their lungs and dying. If you include that in the cost of competing electricity generation, such as natural gas or coal, that immediately changes the economic landscape. But what you also need to do is whenever you have a portfolio standard or a green new deal or whatever, that needs to be goal oriented. So if you want to have low emissions, that should be the goal, not how many of your favorite energy sources you build. Uh, so if you include nuclear in all of those standards in the deals and you include the external costs and then you need to invite the Koreans to come and build 15 so, uh, identical plants, one after the other, at $2,000 per kilowatt, and then... The, the, the economic piece of this is really important. If you want to build out nuclear power, it's got to be a different model than what we have now. And you talk about the solar and wind costs coming down so radically, which is really impressive and great. But um, you need the same thing happening with nuclear power, you know, at scale efficiencies of repeating the same thing over and over and over and bringing the cost down. It was a quip from a Nuclear Regulatory Commission chair um, decades ago that the French have 100 kinds of cheese and two kinds of nuclear reactor. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, the situation is reversed. <laughs> so there's, you know. And, and the companies that build the nuclear reactors like it very much, thank you, because they make some uh, good money on that. Let's go to our next question. Hi, my question is about nuclear storage. So you mentioned that uh, Finland is doing it right now, um, but I'm wondering, has anyone created modeling that would show, okay, if we were going to make all that, the entire energy grid in the world, part renewables and part uh, nuclear and part hydro, that would we really have enough space to store all of that, all, all the nuclear waste? Um, and I hear you guys on, you know, the fact that we need to focus on reducing carbon right now and then we can worry about nuclear, but I'm just, I'm trying to wrap my head around the space issue. Stefan. 
Yeah, sure. That's an excellent question. And this is, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a shame that you don't have any publicly accessible uh, nuclear storage facility here. In, in my home country, we, ha we don't have NIMBY. We don't have not in my backyard for this. We had in my backyard. There were eight municipalities fighting to be the location where we store our nuclear waste. And what you see when you go and visit these, the facility where this waste is stored now, for, for a country, it, it's let's say, an average U.S. state size that got half of its electric power for the last 40 years for nuclear power, that's stored in a swimming pool. It's, it's, that's the volume of that waste. And so it's absolutely staggering how little of it there is. And so we, we, we definitely won't run out of space, but it's also an interesting question of we can't do nuclear because we need to store the waste because... If this was a question in 1942, then that would make sense. But you already have nuclear waste, so you already need storage. It's, it's a done deal for the U.S. and for most countries that use energy. You, you already need storage. The only question is, do you need a little bit more of it or not? And that's a much easier question to ask than do you need it at all? So. And you also, people don't like it moving around on trains through their neighborhood. You know, moving it is, is highly, highly political. Let's go to, yeah, Sonia. Just one thing. Um, I actually worked on uh, accident prevention at a nuclear power plant earlier in my career in Ohio where I grew up. And I'll just say um, a lot of it in the United States, the volume is very small. And that's absolutely Right, but it is stored on site at the nuclear facilities because of this issue that we've had with not having somewhere to put it in this country. But it is, you know, all the spent fuel rods are down there at the bottom of that swimming pool inside the plant. And then if they're not there, they're in dry casts right behind the plant. So there's definitely in places where you don't have a publicly accessible place to put the nuclear waste, there becomes some more that needs to get stored on site. So that's another consideration. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, thank you. I work on complex systems analysis. And one thing, if we look at the big picture and we work backwards from actually succeeding, I think Sonia Agarwal gave a really important fact, uh, something on the order of 10% reduction per year is necessary globally. Another really important fact, very briefly, is about 3,800 entities, might be a little rough on this, emit over 80% of global emissions. So we can guess what those are, big corporations, oil companies, states, militaries, things like that. Obviously, if we can't get that 80% on board, there's no way the other 20% can succeed at creating 10% or more emissions reduction, which is just massive. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder if any of you could say something to this massive elephant of the dominant economic political system in the world that is shoring up the 3,800, which you know shores up things like waste and efficiency, but also, frankly, luxury emissions, you know, massive emissions for things that uh, we just can't afford anymore. We'd like to tackle the big systems question. Well, I Joshua. can say uh, the, the number one thing to start with is China. You know, if you want to deal with the smallest number of actors that have the biggest impact, one person, Xi Jinping, could wake up tomorrow and declare that he's going to take coal off of China's grid and replace it with nuclear power. And at a Swedish rate, it would take down world carbon emissions by about 12 percent. Um, I mean, that's a big thing for just one decision. Um, so that's that's where you'd start. Stefan. Yeah, I, I think the uh, I mean it's an excellent it's the key question, right? Uh, I think the first thing we all need to do is not shut off our low carbon energy that we have. I mean that, that's that's really the step one. Don't shut off what works and then build new. 
But I think just as a comment on, on those individual organizations, they are loving the fight between clean energy sources. They are loving the 100% renewables that are anti-nuclear. This is their favorite thing in the world, that the clean energy sources that are supposed to displace them are internally fighting. And I think we really need to move away from that as quickly as we can. Calling nuclear clean is like, yeah, a little bit. Okay, Sonia? Just to add on, I think that is absolutely the key question. And it's so important to think about where are the concentrated decision makers in this whole system. Um, and so actually, we recently released a book called Designing Climate Solutions, which goes through methodically sector by sector, looking at factories and power plants and um, vehicles. And those are really the three, if you want to try to narrow in, those are the three sectors that we really want to move quickly to decarbonize. And then also looking at which countries uh, are the largest emitters. And you'll see that um, three quarters of all the global emissions are concentrated in the top 20 countries, um, not a list that anyone should want to be on. So how do we think about affecting the power plants, the factories, and the vehicles in each of those top 20 countries? Who makes those decisions? What policies can we use to reduce emissions in each of those sectors as quickly and as cost-effectively as possible? Um, and that's really the only way that we can get there. Next question. Yeah. Um, speaking about Sweden having uh, hydro, um, is the debate of hydro not being fully renewable died out? Is it finished? Is it really fully renewable? Because that debate in the Stockholm Water Conference comes up all the time. So you seem to be assuming that hydro is 100% renewable. Is that correct? Thank you. So Stefan, you know, hydro, is it renewable? And also in a weather disrupted world, hydro may not be as reliable as it has been in the past. Yeah. So I, I think the term renewable is, is not a very good one. It doesn't mean that something is clean or sustainable. Uh, I think everyone agrees it's renewable in, in the terms that water comes back renewably. But actually, Sweden started its nuclear power program not from a climate perspective. No one talked about climate when that nuclear power program was started. One of the main drivers to start it, to go to nuclear, was to protect the last four free rivers in Sweden. We'd built hundreds of hydroelectric power plants that dammed up those rivers. And so people were getting really nervous that we wouldn't have any free-flowing rivers. And so how could we get out of that situation? Now, obviously, the cost points of solar and wind in the 70s were, you know, there were people saying 100% renewables then too, but that was a weaker argument than it is today. Uh, so we could go to oil and coal or we could go to nuclear, but it was one of the main arguments was that the environmental impacts of hydroelectric power are quite immense and people wanted to save rivers, but it, it's definitely renewable. It's not always sustainable or good for the environment. So that's a case by case basis, I think. All of this is choosing the least bad alternative. Everything has negatives. Greg Dalton has been talking about how some countries are going carbon-free with Stefan Fist, an energy consultant and co-author of A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change. Joshua Goldstein, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at American University and co-author with Stefan Fist of A Bright Future. And Sonia Agarwal, Vice President of Energy at the consulting firm Energy Innovation. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. 
If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.